All right. Welcome to another episode of the Lions Guy podcast, where I take on topics in performance and personal growth by exploring the success stories of my guests and their lessons learned. I interview other subject matter experts on topics of performance and growth, and I also review books and other resources to help us all establish clarity, build courage, and lead. I'm your host, Dale Walls, founder of Lions Guide. And on this episode, I've got Mr. Craig Stanland. And in 2012, Craig made a choice that would cost him everything. After exploring the warranty policy of one of the largest tech companies in the world for almost a year, the FBI finally knocked on his door. He was arrested and sentenced to two years of federal prison, followed by three years of supervised release in order to pay a whopping $834,000 in restitution. As you can imagine, he lost his wife, his homes, his cars, his career, and even his identity. And with all that, all he wanted to do was nothing more than to die. Um, it was a well-timed prison visit from his best friend of over 30 years that turned his life around. Today, Craig is a best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and a reinvention architect. He works one-on-one with clients to empower them to break free from their status quo so that they can reinvent themselves with passion, purpose, fulfillment, and meaning. In his book, Blank Canvas, How I Re- Reinvented My Life After Prison, is available on Amazon. So on this episode, Craig and I talk about his story and the lessons he's learned in turning his life around and starting over with a blank canvas. So before I get started, hit the subscribe button now so you don't miss any of our other great guests and content. Uh, and no, this podcast is sponsored by Lions Guide. And if you've been tuning in, getting value from the show, then do yourself a favor, go out on lionsguide.com and join the launch of my community, The Pride. It's no cost to you. It's free. Uh, and you get access to all kinds of free exclusive content to yet to be releases of episodes of the podcast. I've got reading lists out there. Uh, we do live virtual events and trainings. Um, I've got an online, private online group to engage with other growth-minded members and, and much, much more. So again, it's all free. It's and It's all been designed to help you break out of your rut and or break through to that next higher level of yourself by establishing clarity, building your courage, and being the true leader of your life. So check it out now. Go to lionsguide.com and join today. And with that all said, let's start the show. All right, guys, and welcome to the show. And on today's episode, we have Craig Stanlin, who is a best-selling author, a TEDx speaker, and a reinvention architect. And but it's the the why Craig is these things that we're going to get into today because he's got a great story to tell and he's on a great mission. So I'll let you do that part of it as we get into this, Craig. So welcome, thanks to the uh, thanks for joining us today, and uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Dale, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I'm really excited for this because I know we spoke before this and I know this is going to be an awesome conversation. So thank you for the intro. And people are probably wondering what the heck a reinvention architect is. And also, like you said, how I got there. But basically, I help people. I specialize in helping my clients who have climbed their professional mountain only to find themselves at the summit with a success sized hole in the middle of their chest. They are, you know, trapped by the golden handcuffs. They're living life on autopilot. And all they really want is to hit the reset button and really create something of meaning and passion and purpose and fulfillment. So I really work with them to connect with what's important to them and what they want to create in their lives. And it's just, uh, it's some of the most fun and fulfilling work that I could ever think of doing. Now, so, but how'd you get started to this? Like, 
where did you so 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 where'd you where'd you grow up and and you know tell me about where you, where you come from what's what's the background story so the background is I grew up in Westchester County New York which is just about an hour north of Manhattan I grew up in a really nice neighborhood uh, I had a loving mother and father I had an older sister who introduced me to you know rock and roll and Fruit Loops and let me do all sorts of you know things that my parents wouldn't <laughs> let me do. Um, <laughs> You know, I was like, my dad was just this very, he is just this wickedly intelligent guy, but also very fun. You know, I had all the cool toys growing up. I had the go-kart, I had the remote control cars, you know, I had all of the, the accoutrement. I was really quite fortunate. And, you know, but I will say there is one thing, and I think this plays into how I ended up doing what I ended up doing. And what I do now is there was a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure to perform. I was a bright kid. You know, I was always in the top of the class, but I would bring home, let's say I bring home a test. It's got a 97 on it. And my father would look at it and he wouldn't say good job. He would say, why'd you miss those? Why didn't you get a hundred? You know, where those three points go. And then he would look at it and he'd go, you know, the answer to this, you know, these, I know, you know, these, you made a careless, stupid mistake. And really what my seven, you know, eight-year-old brain heard was you're stupid. My father never said that, but that's how I heard it. And then it became this, in a sense, trajectory. And I know we're going to get to it, but it's created this foundation and this trajectory, which ended up, you know, leaving, leading me to what I ended up doing. And so I'll fast forward just a, a little bit. I ended up um, being a personal trainer. I was a personal trainer because I was a competitive power lifter. I was actually a competitive bench press champion. And everybody was like, you need to train, you need to train. <laughs> and I finally got into it. And I really loved the work. I loved the work. I loved doing what I was doing. And one of my clients became very friendly with her and her husband. And we're out for drinks one night. And her husband says, you know, how much money do you make? And I told him, and he goes, wow, that's more than I thought. That's really good. How would you like to make four times that? And I said, I'm listening. And he goes, go meet with a friend of mine. That's all he said. He didn't give me any information, didn't tell me anything else. And so I schedule an appointment with this guy, with the friend. Turns out he's the president of this technology company. And I walk in there. I have no idea what they do. I can barely turn on my own laptop. I, I you know, not computer literate whatsoever. And I sit down in front of him and the guy looks at me. He looks like Johnny Cash. He's just wearing all black. He's like 6'2", an intimidating looking guy sitting across from, you know, this big giant oak table. And he says, you know, so Sandy sent you my way. Who are you? What do you do? And I looked at him. I go, Rick I said, I don't know what you guys do here. I said, there's two things you need to know about me, though. I said, number one, I'm extremely intelligent. Number two, I'll work my fucking ass off for you. And he just looks at me and he goes, you're hired. And that is how I started my corporate career. I actually left personal training, took a massive pay cut to start at the bottom of this company that was a partner of Cisco Systems. So we were selling all the routers and the switches, security software, all the services that go behind that into a variety of companies. And that's really, that is, that's how I started my 13-year career in the corporate world. I hope that gives you a little bit of background to go with. 
Yeah, and, and I was kind of curious as you're talking about your father for a minute. Now, what did he do? He is a patent attorney for IBM. Uh, he worked with them for 48 years. So he, he kept uh, the bar pretty high. You know, the, the standards were high for him. He's you know lawyer, attorney, and you know now, and I can relate to that. You know, and I think that's the part, especially as parents, we've got to remember is that our words, like the engagement we have with our kids, like they're they're formidable, you know, and, and it's, it's what, how are you leading them and with what type of, what type of tools, what, which, uh, which stick are you using, you know? Um, cause it's, it's, I can relate to that. You know, I think it's, it's something that, that I have to remind myself, I'd like to know that everything I say, these kids are, uh, soaking it up and you gotta be real careful with the, with what you're doing. Yeah. And I know it wasn't his intention to send that message by no yeah. stretch. And I imagine that's how he was raised. And like you said, a pretty high bar. Um, my father's, you know, got a wickedly interesting story. Didn't come from much and ended up, you know, getting his doctorate in mechanical engineering and his law degree and becoming, you know, one of, you know, a very like a handful of patent attorneys for IBM. I mean, you know, really at the top of his at the top of his game. So, yeah, there is a there was a high high bar to meet. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's good, you know, and then when it's wielded well, and now you're, you know, you're in your career. So what, how did the, that, that 13, 14 years go for you, you know, once you got to, you know, <laughs> selling, selling IT gear. So the first couple of years were a complete learning curve. Like I said, I barely knew how to turn on a computer and I was so fortunate when I got hired um, somebody else with the same role as myself was also hired um, maybe two days later. And we were going to be supporting uh, these two account managers. And we were going to basically get, you know, assigned to one of them. I got assigned to the best guy. I got assigned to the number one guy, the number one sales guy in the company who was so gregarious with, you know, everything that he taught me. He was generous with his finances. I mean, just really helped mold me into the salesperson I ended up becoming. So the first three, four years was just that learning curve. And this actually is very important because I started at the bottom. I learned how every single thing in that company and our partner company, I learned how every single thing worked. I knew how every single component worked down to the smallest detail. And when my mentor, when this account manager decided to move on to a different opportunity, there was only one person who was ready to take over all of those big accounts. And so I was promoted and given all of the accounts in one day. And that's actually when the money really started flowing. You know, that was when the, you know, broke right through the six figure mark. And then, you know, the 150, the 200, the 250, and it just kept going up, up and up. And I was really, I was very fortunate about all of that. I mean, that was really, it was, it was amazing how it worked out. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And what, what's the time frame that all this is going on in the 2000s? It was early 2000s into around 2013. Around 2013, and that's 2013 is when it all came to a screeching halt. <laughs> well, and before we get it even to the, to that aspect, though, what did uh, what did outside of work life look like for you? This is a great question because it really frames what I just what I just hinted at. I spent pretty much every cent that I made. I had the nice cars. I wore Panerai watches. 
I went to the finest restaurants in Greenwich, Connecticut and Manhattan. You know, I had VIP status at some of these restaurants. Uh, my wife and I would go up and down Greenwich Avenue, which is a little bit like Rodeo Drive on the East Coast, and just, you know, buy the Christian Louis Vuittons, the Jimmy Choo's, you know, all of the, all the big names. And it was just living a lifestyle of absolute excess and chasing high after high, going after the next thing, the next, you know, swipe of the platinum card and just really caught up in the lifestyle. I mean, just out there enjoying so much so to the point that I actually started shirking my work responsibilities because I was having so much fun. I worked out of the house. I had the freedom as a salesperson. You know, I would do my sales calls, but I also would work out of the house. So I had the freedom inherent with that. I would find myself getting drunk and having, you know, lunch in the middle of the day, having four or five hour lunches with my wife in the middle of the day when I should be working. And just, you know, drinking copious amounts of very expensive wine and just, and then going shopping or going to get massages. I mean, just really living what I think a lot of people would say was the life, but in reality, it wasn't. Now, with regard to the, 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 was that kind of known or were you, was this the beginnings of kind of like, seeing what you could get away with. Like, was it known or was it that type of culture where your bosses or the owner of the company or whoever was like, Hey man, you're killing it. Just keep killing it. I don't care what you do. Keep killing it. Or were you starting to kind of, you know, like I say, see what you can get away with. It was, that's interesting because it was a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. I did, I went through a lot of managers and a lot of directors and a lot of them were actually very encouraging to the point of, you know, I remember one time I was out mowing my lawn and the guy called me and he said, are you at your computer? I said, oh, I got to be honest, you know, I'm out mowing the lawn. And he says, Craig, I got to tell you how happy that makes me. That's why we're in sales. That's why we do what we do. So you can do all of these things and have fun. So he was very encouraging of that. Other managers, not so much, but I was starting to test those waters. I definitely was starting to test those waters to see what I could get away with and thinking that, you know, I'd always, you know, I didn't honestly work that hard in school and I still did fairly well. And I thought I could do the same thing in this corporate atmosphere. Right. Yeah. And, and like, how long were you married at, at this point? We were married, uh, let's see, just a few years, just a few years. It was three or f- three years or so. So, so what was, what was the big driver? So what, tell me where things went from there. So you're killing it. You're, you're having this, the life, as you put it, buying everything, get your hands on it, <laughs> every shiny object that floated across uh, your path. Let's, it sounds like what, um, what happened? This was the confluence of many different events. The products that I was selling were becoming more commoditized. So it was much more competitive and the margins were shrinking. So my paychecks were shrinking. Like I said, I was shirking my responsibilities. That started impacting my paychecks. And people would ask me all the time, do you like your job? And I gave the same canned answer to everyone. I don't like my job at all. I like what my job affords me. And I loved that lifestyle. And now my my lifestyle, my identity, I'd become those things. I became my BMWs, my fancy watches, my fancy dinners. That was who I was. That's 
how I thought I had to show up in the world. That's really, I mean, I can't express how much, how, how much I thought that's who I was. So now I've got these shrinking paychecks is threatening the lifestyle, but it's threatening who I am as a human, as a man, it's threatening all of that. And I also behind the scenes of that, when I say that I didn't like my job, but I liked what it afforded me, there was actually an underneath meaning to that, that only I knew, you know, I always wanted to create my own business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to write a screenplay. I had a million ideas, but I could never get them on paper. I wanted to do something really creative, but I didn't have the courage to, to go for it, to actually do it. To, to, I thought I had to leave it all behind to create something new. And so shrinking paychecks, a desire to create something. And like I said, I started at the bottom of the company, so I knew how everything worked. I started looking at our partner company's warranty policy, and I realized there was an opportunity for me to exploit it for my financial gain. And by doing that, I could not only fix my shrinking paycheck problem, my identity problem, I could, in a sense, solve that entrepreneurial problem. I could create this thing that would fill that void of trying to to be creative and to create something on my own. So it really just came about where all of these things came together and resulted in me committing fraud against one of the largest technology companies in the world. <laughs> and what, I mean, what, what did you, did you get tipped off? Like, how did you come into this? Right? Like, I mean, I'm sure you didn't, or maybe you did like, how, how did, how did you come into figuring out what to do? Like, you know, to exploit the, the warranty process. I looked like John Nash in a beautiful mind. If you've ever seen that, where he had just notes and post-its and things written all over the place and journals filled with things. It took, I can't remember exactly how long, but I'd say it took um, several months for me to put together the fraud that I, that I committed. Um, you know, I had, there were a lot of moving pieces and I'll never forget the day that I actually came to it where I just looked at all the work I had done and I said, this is going to work. This will actually, this, this actually has, this has legs. I can do this thing. And it just really, you know, it just was like a light switch. I found, I found the key to the treasure I was seeking and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I was like, this is actually going to work. <laughs> but did you know, like, as you, so you're going through and now were you going through going, okay, this is, this is, how can, how can I make more money? You know, that my, my income is dwindling. I need to be back at this bar, so to speak. Did you know you were doing wrong or were you just figuring, you know, how am I going to solve for this? And you were solving for it. Did, did you know it was wrong out of the gate or did it just your, your, um, your entrepreneurial mind kind of take over to just solve for it to hell with like what's right or wrong? What, what was it? Did you kind of not know you were doing wrong or did you know you're doing wrong? I love this question. And I think there's really only one way to answer it when everything came together. It was a fraud. So it was all done through my laptop, right? When everything came together and I decided to initiate the fraud. It requires hitting the send button. It required hitting the enter button. And right when I was about to hit send to kick this thing off, 
my heart spoke and it said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. And I ignored that voice. I ignored it. And my fraud went on for just about 10 months. And every single time I hit that send button, every single time I hit the mouse button, every single time I did something, that voice said, stop, don't do this. This is not the way. And I just ignored it over and over again. There is something called the fraud triangle, and it basically is need, opportunity, and rationalization. So my need was my shrinking paychecks and the perceived attack on my identity. The opportunity was the warranty policy. And the rationalization came even through the voice saying that of the way I committed my fraud, they would send me something, the technology company would send me something, and I would return something back to them. So I rationalized that it was a one-for-one swap, even though I was lying about why I was receiving that new piece, um, creating false identities to create that new piece, setting up UPS boxes at various stores to commit the fraud. I mean, so many of those things, but I just fell back on that rationalization of, no, this is an even swap. It's okay. Yeah. So (laughs) now I got you. So that you were, yeah. So this was full bore. Yeah. So you're creating, like I said, false identities. You're, you're manipulating the system to, to make this happen. I was, I absolutely was. And it just, it started with, you know, just one, one piece of equipment and the, the, then I realized that this could work and it could scale. So then I started, you know, went to two pieces of equipment, three pieces of equipment, four pieces of equipment, and just started growing it and growing it to this crazy level. And, and it was, there were so many balls being juggled. It was so many things up in the air and it was just, it was exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even as I was hearing you first explain it, like I'm creating identities, sounds like placing orders, going to, you know, fake made up PO box, not made up PO boxes, but uh, UPS store, man. Yeah. That's deep. That's a, that's sophisticated. Um, so, but who else, like, did, did anyone know you were doing this? Nobody. Nobody. My wife knew I was doing, now ex-wife, mom, she knew I was doing something, but I did not provide details. I didn't go into the exact routine and process that I was following. Just gave her just tiny little tidbits and nobody, nobody knew what I was doing. And to, to your point, I want to say when I was, when I was arrested, the FBI agent asked, and I think they do this with everybody, but they want to make sure there's no co-conspirators. And they said, who else was involved? And I said, no one. And they said, who else was involved? There's no way that one human being could perpetuate what you perpetuated. There's a team of people behind this. And they, they actually, they were like, we, we have to think that there's about 30 people behind this. I had to convince them it was just me. Yeah, yeah. And that, again, speaks to the sophistication because it sounds like you're really – you really architected something that was, was deep, you know? So yeah, it sounds like you were juggling and just, but, but you built a system basically, you know, like that's why, that's why I use that entrepreneurial. And I think you said it first, but I wanted to echo it back. Cause that's, it was, it was this entrepreneurial mind of yours 
and, and your intelligence kind of took over and, and built a system, you know, to print print money, so to speak. That's I love the way that you just said that. That's exactly what it was. It was creating a system, which is really interesting because after I was arrested, after they were the FBI was going through all my files, the agent that said there, you know, we think there might be like 30 people behind this came up to me later and actually said, he goes, I want to thank you for the meticulous records you keep. You made my job so easy <laughs> because never before have I seen somebody keep such meticulous records. Right. Yeah. I mean, funny, not funny, right? Like it's just Which is an interesting compliment to get. Right. Yeah. No, hundred percent. The, um, so you get this. So what happened? Like the day it hit the fan, like what went down? What, 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 what was that day? What, what happened? What transpired? What was going through your head? It was October 1st, 2013. And I had started at a new company. Uh, one of our biggest competitors wooed me away with a really aggressive pay package. So I'm two weeks into a new job and I'm no longer working out of the house. So I drive from our home in Connecticut to my office in Manhattan. And I take the elevator up about 36 floors. I'm setting up my desk for the day, you know, taking out my laptop, taking out my phone, putting out my journal, my pen. And I put my, when I put my phone down, I notice that it says one missed call and voicemail. And I'm so confused because like, you know, I had the phone on me the whole time. So I put it up to my ear and I hear the following, Mr. Stanlin, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately, or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. And I, I, it's hard to describe what happened in that moment. It was as though the oxygen was sucked out of the room while simultaneously my heart fell the 36 floors I had just come up. Sheer terror sheer panic and that voice that told me not to do it chimed in at that moment and said, I told you so. And it was, it was a brutal, horrible day. I had to drive. I, I had to, I had to come up with an excuse. Why am I leaving? I'm the new guy. I don't even know everybody's name yet. I have to leave the office that I literally just walked in. Um, I feel like there's a neon sign pointing FBI most wanted, just following me everywhere. I feel like everybody in the office heard that voicemail, like it was broadcast over the PA system. And I, I go and I get my car and I take the about an hour drive up to Connecticut, calling my wife to see what's happening. And she just answers the phone after seven excruciating, excruciatingly long rings and just says, Craig, what's happening? And I couldn't even answer her. Couldn't answer her. I'm trying to get details, calling my father to let him know the FBI is at my house. I'm calling. I don't have a defense attorney because I, you know, I hadn't planned for any of this. And so I called my real estate attorney who actually had a white collar defense attorney who worked out of their office. So I was able to secure representation. And when I get home, I enter the gates of our community and I take the right hand turn down the hill and it just comes into view. There are probably about 15 vehicles 
parked there, cop cars, undercover cars. They look like something that was like a SWAT truck and just agents wearing those blue jackets with the yellow letters, just all standing around. And they saw my car, they knew what I drove, and they all just pointed and they guided me into this parking spot and controlled my movements as I opened up the door and I got out of the car. And they just asked me to identify myself. They turned me around, they frisked me, they turned me back around and said, you are under arrest. And it was just one of the most horrifying and surreal days of my life. I mean, I can only imagine, I mean, just the, the pit of, I don't know, the emotional pit. Because I, I, I imagine there's got to be so much there. The regret, the remorse, the fear, the uncertainty. I mean, oof. It just, it, it, were, were your neighbors out there you know, watching the whole scene as well and all that kind of jazz? When the agent turned me around to put handcuffs on me and I asked him, I was like, please don't put handcuffs on me. I said, look at me. I'm not a threat. I'm not a large guy. You know, I'm 5'4", 130 pounds. And he said, it's procedure. And right when he started putting them around, I looked up to see my neighbor, Carl, peeking through his curtains. And when we made eye contact, uh, you know, Carl was probably in his 60s, but he acted like a six-year-old who was caught and jumped out of view and, and closed the curtain quickly. And that just... It's just one of those surreal moments that added to the weight of what was happening. Fortunately, I think he was the only person who saw, but you know, I lived in a pretty tight community and with the amount of vehicles that were there and the amount of people, I'm sure more, more people were, were well aware of what was happening than just, just that one individual. Yeah. And I mean, and the reason that even came to mind, right? Cause you'd say like, well, what do you worry about the, the neighbors looking? It, what made that come to mind was that you had spent this, this, your, your career at this point, um, building this, this persona that this, this, this thing that you were chasing these things, this lifestyle that, that you mentioned earlier and a part of build, building that lifestyle when you see it is, is that prestige that like what you're putting on for other people to see, right. It's about, it's about how people see you. So, um, just like going from, you know, what you were living to this, uh, you know, just psychologically, you know, is a, is a freaking turmoil to what you were trying to do. You know, it's just, you know, compounds to the whole, whole effect of kind of what I, what I'm, what I'm kind of, as you walk me through it, I'm kind of imagining where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. It was completely, here's this facade that I was fighting so hard to maintain that comes crumbling down in an instance. And to your point, after I was arrested, I couldn't look anybody in the eye anymore. I could not look people in the eye. If I looked them in the eye, I thought that they were looking through me. I felt like a ghost. I thought everybody knew from the bank teller to the gas station attendant to whoever. I thought everybody knew that this scarlet letter that I felt inside was on the outside for everybody to see, that they could see my shame, that they could see my regret, they could, they could see my guilt, and that they all thought... I was just this disgusting, horrible human being. So I wouldn't look anybody in the eye. I would look at the tip of their left ear. I'm sure they knew what I was doing. You know, I mean, we know when somebody's making eye contact with us, but this was my, this was my little trick was the tip of the left ear or a spot on the wall directly behind them. 
just so I just so I didn't have to to have that that moment of being seen. Yeah, that that's that that yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I think that's the the, the amount of shame to walk around with. That's that's a burden. That's that's a huge burden. The what um so that day I and and I think that stay with the day for a moment. What was how helpless did you feel with going through that? Like what, what were you feeling to like, I don't know, like, were you feeling like you could do anything? I, I'd imagine you were just in a helpless situation that, you know, I imagine they probably didn't want to let you speak. You know, I, you know, what was, what was that aspect of it? The helplessness. That's the perfect word. You nailed it. It's helplessness. It is sheer, utter helplessness that my life was no longer my own. It belonged to these people. It belonged to, it belonged to people that I hadn't even met yet. You know, I knew that it was going to be the judge and the lawyers and, you know, just this team of people behind the scenes that made all of this happen. And it was not only was it the, the mental helplessness, having my arms behind my back handcuffed, it was physical helplessness. And th- it just exacerbated everything. And it, it was, I was thrown into a river and I had zero control of where that river was going. That's what it, that's what it felt like. It was just, and I was drowning along the way, but that helplessness is absolutely, it's, that's, that's the, that's the key word, just powerless, helpless and through all of that terrified right there's a sheer terror the what so where did things go from there and obviously you've got your wife you've got your family you've got your friends like you know where where did things go from here uh with what you were going through and then how it was impacting those around you and, and those that you cared about. So I think this is super interesting because it made me realize at the time that it was the equivalent of having a still pond and dropping a boulder in the middle of it and those ripples going out and impacting so many areas of my life, my wife, my family, my friends, my new employer, just that ripple effect And the day of the arrest, I knew that the boulder had dropped in, but I didn't realize how far those ripples were actually going to reach. So I wasn't able to speak to my wife um, when I was, they didn't let me go in the house. They stopped me before I even got in the house and they kept us away from each other. So I was not able to see her. I was not able to make any phone calls at the time, put in the car and I was brought to a courthouse where my arraignment took place. And it was then sitting in the, this was interesting. I was sitting in the juror's box in the courtroom when I heard the door open and I looked and I saw my wife for the first time. And that was in a sense, one of the first ripples that I became aware of from the boulder dropping in because I could see the sheer terror and uncertainty in her eyes. I could see the weight on her shoulders when she walked into that courtroom, not knowing what the hell was happening, not knowing what the hell was going to happen. 
And I was fortunate my father and my wife put up my my bail, which was, I think, $100,000. They co-signed the $100,000 bail agreement. And so I was able to be released on my own recognizance. And from there, it was the, the long drive home from the courthouse with my wife and just her, rightfully so, asking me a million questions. What the hell happened? What are we going to do? What now? And I had zero answers. And she, like I had said earlier, she she knew I was doing something, but I never gave her details. But I would always say when she would ask, is what you're doing okay? And I'd say, it's fine. It's fine. I would just get pissed off and I would blow it off. And she was just yelling. I thought you said it was okay. You lied to me. And the betrayal in her eyes. So we get home and it's just all of these questions. But now I haven't spoken to my father in ages. So I have to call him and I have to explain that I was arrested and charged with one count of mail fraud. And at the time in the arraignment, they said that it would be up to a $250,000 fine and up to 20 years in prison. So I had no idea how the court system works, but I heard 20 years and literally thought my life was over. And I, then I had to make all the phone calls and those ripples just kept going out. I had to call my mom. I had to call my aunt. I had to call my father-in-law. I called my new employer who refused to accept my resignation because I didn't tell him exactly what happened. I just said, thank you for the opportunity, but something has occurred and I need to resign. And he refused to accept it. And it was just moment after moment. And one way that I like to put it is the, the bottom fell out and it, I was falling and I could not see a bottom anywhere. It was just falling into the abyss. It was falling into infinity. And just each of those little steps was just a, a, a further drop to that bottom. All the while, the shame was just increasing. Who hung in there for you, right? So it sounds like maybe your your mother and father, you mentioned stepfather. So it sounds like maybe they were split. You mentioned your father. You hadn't talked to him ages. Um, the employer, you know, not accepting your resignation, like, who, who, obviously some, you know, on this initial kind of event fallout, um, you had some supporters come through who, who'd you keep, who'd you lose every, the day of everybody was a support structure. Everybody was a support structure as the process started going deeper and deeper. That's when people started falling off. And I was fortunate that not a lot of people fell off. My employer. So when I was arrested, the government was actually in a shutdown. So the FBI was very gleeful in telling me that everybody who came to arrest me that day was doing it for no pay. So <laughs> that's important to say because everything was shut down. The FBI press office was also shut down. So there was no news. It didn't hit the news until two weeks later. And then it hit the news and it blew up. It blew up on Google, and that's when my employer found out what happened. And he couldn't have been more kind and more gentle and more professional and looking out for the company in the way that he accepted my resignation. I was really impressed by him. And my father-in-law was still supporting me at the time, but it was getting less and less. Um, my wife was supportive, but also I could feel pulling back. I, I had this sense that we were, we were over, that we were done. 
my friends were fantastic. It really wasn't until I ended up going to prison that I ended up losing uh, a couple of friends over it. And now I realize what an amazing filter this was, if you really think about it, to be able to you know, filter these people out of my life. Is that if you really can't be here during this, then you're not really my friend. And then counter to that, a couple of people who were acquaintances stepped up and came to visit me in prison out of the blue. And I mean, just, you know, it's interesting the how people handle something of this magnitude. So I, I love that question. Thank you. Hey guys, Dale here. And I wanted to take a quick break to invite you to join the launch of the Lions Guy community called The Pride. You see, whether it was at work dealing with the demands of the day or maintaining the demands of my life at home, I always seemed to feel like my struggles were unique, like somehow I was the only one struggling to find joy amidst all the weight that I felt I was carrying each day. And you know what I've come to realize is that we all have our struggles that we're up against, and it's pretty demanding. The only way to rise to those demands is to decide and make the change to adopt a growth mindset, to be what I call a high performer. And that's why I started Lion's Guide. I want to help you break through to the next level of you and your ability to not only meet but exceed those demands on you and in doing so, find your joy again. If you're a growth-minded individual ready to make a change, then I'm here for you. And this is how you get started. I invite you to visit lionsguide.com and sign up to join the Pride. The Pride is the Lions Guide community for growth-minded members like you. Once signed up, you'll get special access to all the free content and resources I'm putting out there. You'll also be invited to join my live online events where I host sessions on personal growth and high performance. You'll also be able to engage with other growth-minded members on our private online group. Also, if you enjoy the podcast as a member, you'll get access not only to all the podcasts, but also the podcasts that have been yet to be released. So get access to all this and more. So break out of that rut, break into your next level and join me on lionsguide.com and let's grow together. Go to lionsguide.com and become a member of the pride today. Now back to the show. It's one of these things, right? You know, uh, you know, in, in some reading and, and content, um, you know, I've, I've kind of dove into some of the psychology of this, you know, cause it's a betrayal, right? You, you know, like, like, you know, the common thing you see is like when, you know, the, the spouse, you know, cheats on their partner. Right. And the, 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 the psychological impact is the fact that you're not who they thought you were and the betrayal of that. And so you, you, you know, you can't, you know, you know, the, the abandonment that you feel, would experience from people. It's, it's like, you know, they, they, they come to find out in their mind, at least it would seem like you weren't who they thought you were because they found out you were capable of this deception. Right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost like this, who are you? Like, I don't know who you are. Is that, is that how you felt it? Like that those who you lost along the way, like did they, was it just a betrayal and, and just, they, they weren't, they didn't feel like who they, this event, um, you know, cause obviously you've grown, we'll, we'll get to that part of it too, but we did it feel like people, you know, just, um, it, you weren't who they thought you were. Was that a major part of it? Definitely with my wife. Absolutely. You nailed it a hundred percent. It was a betrayal. I broke the key foundational piece of any relationship, which is trust. I destroyed that. I completely destroyed that. So that was definitely with my wife. That was eventually, I believe, my father-in-law 
also um, fell with fell into that. And then a few of the friends that I lost, you know, I I don't think that they left because of the betrayal. I honestly think they left because it was just too much work. It was just too much work for them to be in this relationship, to to be friends. It was much easier things that they could do in their life. And I think I think that was the crux of why some of those friends left. Yeah. And I and and that was the other side of this as I was hearing you explain the the loss of your circle or the pieces of it was that the you know the the gratitude for those who hung in and came through uh despite the error you know that for for who for you right um i was about to say for who you are but i think we're going to talk about finding who you really are um but but you know f- but for you you know despite this error you know and judgment we'll say um you know the gratitude for those people I, I, that's got to be immense it's it's absolutely tremendous and i would have found the entire process next to impossible without that support. So the gratitude for them was immeasurable. But here's an interesting component of that gratitude and how amazing everybody was, how my father, my mother, my aunt, my best friend, I mean, how these people stepped up was mind-blowing and so supportive. But here's the... Here's the, if you will, mindfuck of the whole thing. Because of the shame that I was experiencing, I didn't feel worthy of all this kindness. So every single time somebody would extend an act of kindness, which I was grateful for, it it stung like there was rubbing alcohol running through my veins. That's what it, I mean, that's what it felt like. It was just because of the shame and the unworthiness. How could somebody be this nice to me when I'm such a piece of garbage because of what I did. So it was, it was a weird double-edged sword. Yeah. And I guess, did you feel transformation in the, I don't know. It sounds like that, that voice who told that, that told you not to was now back in the driver's seat and, and was looking down in judgment on yourself on who you were to have done that. Like, um, you know, were you really, you know, was, was that kind of how, how it was? I fell into absolute self-loathing and that voice, I would say the, the voice that told me not to do it, that was my heart. That was my, that was my higher self, my ego with the lower S the lowercase S, um, self that took over and really just berated me into pure shame and self-loathing. How could I do what I did? How could I sacrifice so much for so little? Um, I was, I didn't know who I was because my identity had become so rooted in all of my things. And now all of the things are gone instantaneously. So I didn't know who I was other than the man who destroyed his life, the life of the woman he loves. And I was alone at rock bottom with that guy. And I absolutely hated him. You know, I wanted out of my skin. It just, I just wanted to rip my skin off and be done with it, done with it. And that voice, the, the higher self, my heart, because I ignored it so many times, it felt as though it disappeared. 
it felt as if it was completely gone. And I now know that that voice is always with us. But because the other voice was so loud that I was such a piece of garbage, I couldn't hear it. And I have to tell you, the emptiness that ensues without that higher self voice just exacerbated the shame, just made it even worse. I felt so hollow and empty inside. Um, I felt like I was walking on, you know, twig legs that, that, you know, like bird, like bird bones um, in my body. I mean, it was just so, such a, such a horrible vacuum of an existence. Yeah. I mean, because that betrayal we talked about, you know, I, I guess you're really living that within yourself, you know, you're, you're, you've, you betrayed yourself, your potential, you know? Um, so that was the you versus you in your head. It seems like that, that you were, that you were, you know, loathing over, um, that, you know, you, you betrayed your, your potential, you know, your, your higher self, you, you could have been, you know, in, in, in a way. Absolutely. It was, it was, and in the beginning, it wasn't even a battle. It was just a one-sided fight. It was just the pure self-loathing just driving me, um, driving me to the, to the point of, you know, I think this will, I think this will summarize in a sense of how bad that voice got my, I started meditating in prison. Um, always said I wanted to before I went to prison. Um, but I started meditating. And one time during my meditation, this short film of what it would look like to blow my brains out popped into my brain. And, you know, I blew it off. I thought that was really weird. But then the video played again. I blew it off again. I was like, no, I don't, obviously, I don't want to think about that. And it played again. And it played again. And next thing you know, it was on a perpetual loop every second of every day for four months straight. And it's maddening to live in that world because the video was so real and so graphic and, and raw that I could actually, you know, towards the end of those four months, I could, I could feel everything as if it was, it was happening in real time. It was no longer happening in my brain. It actually had physical sensations with it. And it's, it's how deep into my neural pathways, this, video had dug itself yeah this this infection of the mind so you're in the you're in the depths of hell where do we go from here in the depths of hell i would towards the end of that that four months of that video playing on perpetual loop i would go to sleep um we, we had a, we were counted in prison uh, a couple times a day to make sure that nobody had escaped. And there was a 10 PM count. So I used to just wait for that 10 PM count. Cause I would go to sleep after we were counted. And it was the, it was the worst and best part of my day because it was the worst because when, after I was counted, I would climb into my bunk and rest my head on the pillow. It was the culmination of that video and all of the self-loathing would just come in and I wouldn't wasn't going to cry. I'm not going to cry in prison. I didn't want to be that guy. So it would hold back the tears and I would pray. And I'm not even necessarily a religious man, but I would pray and say, please make it stop. Please make it stop. Please make it fucking stop. And I would do, I would repeat that over and over again until sleep put me out of my misery. And that was actually the best part of my day because I would sleep and have an escape from that reprieve. And I say that because you know, you pray, please make it fucking stop over and over again. 
I started planning how I was going to kill myself. And I couldn't talk to anybody in prison about that. Because if you mention suicide in prison, they will lock you in solitary confinement. And I'm already in my own personal hell. And the idea of being locked in solitary scared the hell out of me. So I couldn't share it over the phone with any family because phone calls are recorded and listened to. Emails are recorded and read. And I couldn't speak to any of my friends inside prison who were some of the nicest, kindest people I've ever met, but out of fear that they'd be worried about me and they would talk to a guard or some other prison official. So I just bottled it up and I started planning how I could end my life. And then one day, it was a Wednesday, check my email. There's an email from my best friend of over 30 years, my friend, Sean. And he just says one sentence, hey man, can I come for a visit this weekend? And the visiting room was not monitored. I could tell Sean everything that was going on. I could get this burden out of me. So I was thrilled. I was absolutely excited. I said, absolutely, you can come visit. Saturday seemed to take forever to arrive, but it finally did. And Sean buys some food out of the vending machine. Um, We sit down and Dale, I can't tell you like the, the elation that I felt that I was going to be able to get this up and out of me and share it in a safe place with, with my friend, Sean, it was so joyful and it felt so good. And I opened my mouth to speak. And before I can say a word, Sean's telling me about all of his problems. He's getting divorced. He's got, you know, work issues. He's got money issues. He has a sadness in his voice and in his eyes that I've never seen in 30 plus years of friendship with this man. And it was at that moment that I realized that I had value and that I had worth and that I had value and worth outside of the things that I had believed made me worthy. I was not my fancy cars. I was not my fancy watches. I was just a friend to my friend and nothing more. And that is actually the moment that my transformation began. And what, how did it go from there? So now, now did, now did you get to get the relief? Did you guys share where you were or did you, you know, just be there for him at that point? I was just there for him because I had this, I don't even think he, he now knows the magnitude of his visit, but at the time I don't think he could have seen what was happening inside of me. But when I realized that I had that value and that worth and that I didn't want to die, I just didn't want to feel like that anymore. When I realized all of these things, I didn't have to tell him anything. That was relief alone. I never ended up telling him until I shared the chapter in my book that goes into all the detail of this, um, just to make sure he was okay, that it was going to be put out in the world the way that it was um, presented. That's the first time he found out about it. We we talked about him. I, I held space for him. I listened to him. Then it got into the fun stuff that, you know, two guys who've known each other for 30 plus years, you know, what's Rob up to? What's Chris up to? What's Jay getting into? You know, just, you know, talking about all the fun things. I'm telling him about the silly things that can only happen in prison. Like it just totally transformed. And what I think is interesting is, you know, I would, I would go to sleep praying that it would stop. And when I woke up in the morning, this is before Sean's visit. When I woke up in the morning, every single morning, I was disappointed to see the light of a new day. And after Sean's visit, I didn't pray. 
And when I woke up the next morning, I wasn't all rainbows and sunshines and unicorn, but I wasn't disappointed at the light of a new day. And even that gave me hope to then rebuild and reinvent my life. That's amazing. The, yeah, no. And, and I mean, I can't honor you enough for kind of sharing this and that from there, how, how did you start building? Like, where did you take it from prison? Um, when did you get out? What, what, uh, what, what transpired now you're, now you're starting to turn the corner and start to climb. It sounds like where, where did you go from here? It was, there were a couple of really pivotal moments for me inside prison. Uh, number one, and I think this is really important, um, is, is that I was sitting in the prison library and I was journaling. I'd started journaling. There were three practices I started in prison that I still do to this day. And I rarely miss a day. I mean, seven years later, I've missed a handful of days for these three practices, meditation, gratitude, and journaling. So I was journaling in prison and I was really doing a lot of woe is me. And I was wishing things were different. I was wishing that I was home with my wife and my dog and my cat, but she had already told me that she was leaving me. So that was, I mean, an impossibility. I wish I didn't make the choices I made. I wish I wasn't in prison. I wish I wasn't financially ruined. I wish I wasn't a convicted felon and was wishing, wishing, wishing. And my intuition took over and I just started writing I accept that I'm a federally convicted felon. I accept that I made the choices that I made. I accept that I'm financially ruined. Everything that I was wishing that it was different, I went through and I accepted it. And it hurt like hell to do that. I mean, it stung because I was admitting things that were really crappy. But when I was done, I'm sitting inside prison and I felt something amazing. I felt freedom because I was no longer trapped in the past, wishing for things to be different when they cannot be anything other than they are which was impacting my ability to see my future. So practicing acceptance was my first step. I still didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I had a baseline. I had a baseline. And then another pivotal moment inside prison was when you don't actually, this is going to sound weird for anybody who maybe doesn't know how our uh, federal prison system works. You know, I knew I had a two-year sentence, but I didn't know when I was actually leaving because you leave prison to go to a halfway house, you know, to kind of like assimilate back into the real world. There's no set date when you leave prison to go to the halfway house. It's dependent on so many different factors. So it's up in the air, but I knew that my time was coming. I knew that it was coming and eventually my name went on the board that I'd be leaving prison to go to the halfway house. And it was such a moment of great excitement, but this meant that I had to go back into the real world. I had no job. I was getting divorced. I was financially ruined. I didn't have, you know, I had family who were amazing, but I didn't have a home. I thought I was going to be homeless. You know, I mean, all of the pressures of the real world were coming in and I was scared. And my mentor, Ed, saw my name on the board and he approached me and we start walking down the hallway and he says, you know, Craig, how you feeling? You're going to get out of here. How great is that? And I told him, I said, Ed, you know, getting divorced, no money, no home, no job. Who's going to hire a felon? I'm really, you know, I'm scared. And he put his arm around me, which was really nice because there's not a lot of touch in prison, something that I learned very much to miss. Um, so, and Ed was probably 20 years older than me. So it was a little bit of a, a fatherly feel to it. And he put his arm around my shoulder. He looked me in the eye and he said, Craig, you have a blank canvas. You can paint whatever picture you want. And I 
he reframed my entire life in that moment. So those were two very pivotal moments for me to, to transform. And that just led me into a massive amount of introspection. And a lot of that introspection was done in the production of my book and just really getting to the most raw and real version of the story so that I could not only help myself, but I could help somebody else. And that was, that was a several year journey just within. And in, in the interim, I was, you know, after I got out of prison, went to the halfway house, I was working at the front desk at a gym, making 12 bucks an hour. Uh, you know, I mean, I used to make more in a month than I was going to make in an entire year, <laughs> but I had a job and it, it allowed me to, because it wasn't mentally taxing. It didn't eat up a lot of mental bandwidth. I was able to to focus for about three and a half years just on me and just really getting to the crux of why I made that choice, what was missing. And really from there, that was, that was really building my foundation in which the rest of my life was, is, is, and was built on. Yeah. And you use the word acceptance a lot. Um, and I was curious if you have a reason or your thoughts around acceptance versus forgiveness is, was there, you didn't use forgiveness as a word, like forgave yourself. You said you kind of accepted what you'd done. What, what are your thoughts on that? This is, this is also very interesting because acceptance was that first step. It was the giving myself a baseline. Forgiveness came a few steps later because of that shame, because of that guilt. I knew I had to forgive myself. Um, otherwise I would be held in the, the grips of regret and shame for the rest of my life. And the forgiveness journey was extremely long, extremely difficult. Uh, I mean, daunting, like you can't believe because I didn't feel worthy of forgiveness. I had to do a lot of other work to be able to get to the point where I genuinely forgave myself. I didn't, you know, I know that, um, and, and, and I do believe in the power of what I'm about to say, but a forgiveness practice of saying, I forgive myself for committing a crime and repeating that over and over again. I do believe in the power of that, but because I had ignored my voice and the voice felt like it went away, when I started saying, I forgive myself, I didn't trust myself because I, I couldn't trust my own words. So I had to rebuild trust. I had to rebuild my self-worth. I had to rebuild my sense of enough before I even got to that place to be able to forgive myself. And when I said those words, to know that I was worthy of them and to trust what I was saying. And this was still, right? So, because I'm, I'm trying to keep track of the timeline of this. So now you're, before you went to the halfway house, you had accepted it, but it took much longer to get to this point of forgiveness. Is that, is that correct? That is correct. I was, I mean, it took, it took a few years to actually get to the point of forgiveness. Yeah. It took, it took a few years. That's how strong the, the shame and the feeling of not being worthy. The forgiveness is one of the greatest acts of love and compassion that we can extend to ourselves. And I really believed and I know this isn't true now, but at the time, because of the betrayal that I had done to my wife, I destroyed love and therefore I'm not worthy of love. And that means from other people and myself. 
And how, how could I give myself this gift of love through forgiveness when I destroyed love? Well, there was a lot of work through that as well to be able to get to that. I mean, honestly, from the time I left prison to the time I could actually forgive myself, it was probably about three to four years. So what do you do now? What's, uh, how, how has, how has this, how has your life changed, you know, from that point of reaching forgiveness to, to where you are today? It has completely, as, as one can imagine, has completely and utterly transformed my life into a life that I wouldn't exchange for anything at all. I mean, genuine joy and fulfillment every single day. So I, I am a bestselling author. I'm a TEDx and keynote speaker. I've got a couple of keynotes coming up, um, actually for the American certified fraud examiners of all things, I'm doing a couple of keynotes for, for them, uh, this fall and winter, (laughs) right? (laughs) Which I'm, I'm super excited, um, about those. And I, I coach people, I call myself a reinvention architect because when I first realized that I wanted to, to really give meaning to all of the suffering I caused to my family, to my friends, to my wife, and to myself, I thought, how could I, how could I best do this? And remember I had said that I wanted to write a screenplay? Well, writing the book, I was actually connecting with that old desire. And I knew that the book would be of service to other people. I know that speaking openly the way that I do about the story and the experience can be of service to other people. And that's what led me into wanting to, to coach was taking the suffering and giving it meaning in service of others. And so what I do now is I really want to connect with people, what I would call pre-choice Craig, the Craig that was living that crazy life but and wanted to create something new for himself but didn't know how to and was too afraid to do that. So I really I specialize in working with high achievers who who have summited their professional mountain, you know, to find themselves empty. And I love using the word, you know, the phrase a successized hole in their lives because that's exactly how I felt. And you know, I really help them navigate and break free of, you know, their golden handcuffs, um, the life on autopilot, just doing the same thing over and over again. And we hit the reset button so that they can fill that successized hole. But this is the most critical component without giving up everything that they fought so hard to build, because that's such a common misconception that if I am to reinvent myself, if I'm going to reset my life, that I have to give up everything that I fought so hard to build. And that is completely false. It's, it's a belief that I fell into that was a contributing factor, um, to my choice to commit that fraud. Yeah, no, it's the fear of loss that we face, right? We don't know it to be true, but it's, it's the fear, fear that we have that we're going to lose something of value by making a change, um, or, or, or making a decision. And, and it's, it's, it's something that takes the courage to face and, and overcome. Um, who, who, um, who is your clients today? Who are, who are you serving? Who, when do, who, when do, when do your clients come to you? What are they up against? Uh, how are you helping them? They are majority. Well, it's interesting. I have a bunch in the, in the corporate world, 
Um, I've got, you know, I've got a musician, I've got photographers, you know, people through a lot of different things, but really they, they're folks that they really, they climbed the mountain they were told they should. And now they want to climb the mountain that they really want to climb. And so they come to me when they realize that they, they've reached this inflection point where success and the things and the status just aren't cutting it. And they really want to, most of my clients are kind of at about the midlife point or so. And for the second half of their lives, so the second act of their lives, they really want to connect with leaving a legacy. They want to create something of meaning. They want to have that sense of fulfillment and joy. And they don't want to wait until retirement where, you know, when I retire, I can do X, Y, and Z. They want to have that joy and fulfillment now. And that's when they, that's when they come to me and we just get, and I know this is one of your favorite words and I I love you for it. Um, clarity, you know, just getting that clarity. It's like, what do you want to build in your life? How do you want to feel every day? No. And I appreciate it. And that's like amongst my clients as well. Like, uh, you know, uh, you know, when I, kind of query them and their favorite part of the experience, they always come back to clarity, 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 clarity. It's like, it, it's, and it's, it's shining the light on your future, you know, um, and maybe shining the light on, I'll say, you know, this darkness that you put yourself in by, you know, the shadows of, of, uh, I think what you said as far as like what they were told to be and go obtain like this mountain that you, you went and captured it, um, you know, because that's what society or ego or egos of those around you told you or showed you that you were to get and not know any better. You went and got it, you know, and now you're like, well, why do I feel this way? And it's like this, um, and I appreciate you used the word because it's something that, you know, I think people dance around, but it's joy, like finding joy again, because you've got this rat race of a life and this pile of things. But if you don't have the joy, it, it's, it's a lot of nothing. It's a lot of, a lot of nothing piled up around you. It really is. It really is. And I think what's so to your, to your point, it, it can feel a little bit like a betrayal you know, um, society and family and friends, uh, all telling us that we've got to climb this particular mountain. And, you know, when you get to the top, there's going to be the, you know, the, the, the reward is waiting for you. And then it's not up there. And it just feels like a bit of a betrayal. It's like, no, I did all the things I was supposed to do. Why don't I feel joy? And it really comes down to joy comes from within. It comes from doing things that are in alignment with who we want to be and how we want to show up. And just really connecting with that and taking action towards those things every single day. And when we do, when we create that joy, it actually, you know, let's say we don't like our jobs, but if we have something that creates joy in our lives, all of a sudden our jobs are painted in a different color. It just, you know, using that ripple um, analogy again, when we create joy in our lives, it ripples out to all other aspects of our lives and makes the things that aren't maybe that tolerable, it makes them that much more tolerable. And for the things that are awesome, it makes them even more so. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's where, you know, the, the clarity, when you establish clarity, right, when you sit down and go, 
who am I and what do I really want? Like, you know, because there's this bit of, you know, back to kind of living that life that you talked about earlier, there's, there's that, there's that, um, that score, that score, you know, people are keeping score. You're, you're keeping score in this, this ego race, man. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's wild to watch, but if you, if you kind of get this clarity of what do you really want? Not, not what, what you think you want because you think you should have it because that's what these other folks around you or whatever the case may be in the circle or your influence are, are, are after. So you're chasing it too. You're not being a leader, you know, you're going with the flow, but you know, you, you start to realize what you're congruent with and what you're not congruent with. Um, and from there, it's another key thing. I think that, that you mentioned earlier, I think is important is, once you establish that clarity, right, you, 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 you're kind of hitting this rat race and you're kind of going, man, why do I not feel the joy? Why do I have all this, but I don't feel good about it. And you, and you truly have the courage to start getting that clarity to find that courage or find that congruence. You know, I realize that you're not living congruent with congruently with who you are. Now, the second round is, do you have the courage to do something about it? Right. Do you have the courage to start living with who you want to be and how you want to feel? Or are you still going to continue to succumb to that score that you're trying to keep with ego of yourself and others? Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And both of those things, the clarity and the decision to do something about it, takes a massive amount of courage to get very clear on what you want, because that is, I don't know if you find this with your clients, but I know that it can be a real sticking point to say to somebody, what do you want in your life? What really matters to you? And to go beyond the canned answers that we think that we're supposed to say, the BMW, the house on the beach, the vacation to Aruba, you know, whatever it may be, like the canned answers to really get to the point of somebody saying, I have a client who loves um, Japanese woodworking, but to be able to get very clear on that and to have the courage to say, this is what I want to do. It, that's like you said, shining a light on it when you get really clear because it's such a weighty question. What do you want in your life to not be able to answer that? We don't like uncertainty. We don't like being afraid. And that question can inspire a lot of those feelings. So it takes a level of courage and deftness to be able to maneuver that to get to that clarity. And then, like you said, to be able to then take action on it. That is a huge thing to let go of that comparison. Um, you know, Mark Twain comparison is the death of joy. It really is, you know, to, to, to put the scorecard away and to create a new scorecard and maybe you're the only one on it. And that's what matters. But that takes a lot of courage and takes a lot of maneuvering to get to that point. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, and this is not a political show and this, I know you don't want to talk about politics, but I'm going to speak on something that I just observe about our society today because I love that quote. And actually I hadn't heard that before, but in my opinion, social media has, has brought that upon us, right? Like we are constantly comparing ourselves to those highlight reels online now, like it's in, in wondering, well, what's wrong with me? Why don't I have that? 
why, why does everyone else not have problems that I have? And it's, it's nonsense, you know, in, in, so <laughs> comparison steals the joy a hundred percent. I think a lot of people are starving for joy for all the wrong reasons. Um, and you know, they're, they're, they're in this trap where they're seeing this and they're, it's just this perpetual loop downward spiral of what's wrong with me when everyone else has got it so well, um, because they're comparing themselves to, um, some fiction in a way, or at least not authenticity, like half truths is probably a better way to put it. Right. Yeah. yeah some of those, those things, those highlights we're seeing online are, are true, but they're only half the story. Um, and the other half of the story you're not seeing is that same struggle that you're feeling, you know, within, because we all have them, right? Life is a struggle, man. <laughs> Everyone's looking like, when I get here, it's going to be easy. Nope. It's never going to be easy, man. So, um, let's get your head right. You know, life's a struggle. Um, but you, you find, you know, I appreciate you saying it like the fulfillment in, you know, the way you, um, rise to that struggle and overcome it and, and keep climbing, you know? And I think, I think there's a couple things I'd love to touch on there is with social media, what we end up doing is comparing our insides to somebody else's outsides. We have, like you said, no idea what the other half of the story is. No idea. The, the beautiful stage shot that we see behind the camera could be an absolute disaster. It could be a closet-sized apartment in New York City, but this person made one corner of it look fantastic and almost give it the scale, like it looks like it's a giant palatial place, but it is a 400-square-foot closet in New York City that is, you know, maybe has a cockroach in the corner. We don't see those things. We don't know the inner turmoil that somebody may be feeling to keep the pressure of this facade up. You know, we just, we don't know. And, you know, something that I, a line that I wrote in my book was, you know, society thought Robin Williams was happy. And, you know, we just don't know somebody's internal struggles. We really, we really don't. And I think that's so critical to remember is to just, you know, what feels good for us. And to really take action on that and letting go of that. I love you. I love the word scorecard because that's it. You know, letting go, go of that scorecard because it's so arbitrary. Yeah. Like get a real one, get a, and, and get a real one on the things that matter to you, right? Not, not what matters to others or what's going to keep that, those friends that aren't really your friends, you know, that they're just the ones that you want to, you know, compare that ego driven scorecard with, you know? And I think like knowing like, that truth that as you spoke it, you know, um, that everyone's struggling and dealing with their stuff and, and there's, there's stuff going on behind the scenes. Like, yes, like know that and give yourself some grace and know that in how you interact with others, you know, um, and, and bring some clarity to, to who you are and who you want to be. And, um, and then also bring some clarity to how you want to interact with others with that known, you know, with that in mind, knowing that, that, you know, the people that you're in, engaging with have the same struggles, dealing with the same stuff, probably heavier. And even you know, if you act as if that's true, you know, how much more uh, joy we can bring to the world um, just for ourselves and, and with others. I mean, just think like back to your story with, um, uh, I believe you said his name was Sean, um, the, 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 what, how it felt to be there for him, you know, and, and feel that value. Like that's a value that we can all bring, you know, that that, that we're rising to, for, you know, uh, and navigate these struggles and challenges that we're up against, but also 
big and brave enough to support others in that same battle and, and not uh, not just uh, uh, you know go through that selfishly you know so i think i think it's really you know, you've got a great powerful mindset around this man i, I love it oh thank you so much and, and so do you I, I love everything that you are putting out there it's just just resonates within me. I mean, the way that you're articulating everything is it's beautiful. So thank you for, for that. And I think something that is important to remember is oftentimes the things that can bring us the greatest amount of joy don't cost anything is to actually stop and be there for a friend. You know, we can say that there's an opportunity cost because there's time spent. But, you know, if we start analyzing that, then that's a whole different set of issues. But to be there for a friend, to just listen to them, um, taking the time to stop and look at a sunset or a sunrise and just be in awe of nature, going on hikes, going to the beach, you know, all these little things. If, you know, you've got the ability to do them it doesn't actually cost a tremendous amount of money to do some of the things that bring us the greatest amount of joy. I love writing. I can do it with a pen and paper or my computer. doesn't matter. But with a pen and paper, I mean, that's what, three bucks? And I can sit and create so much internal joy for myself. And it's not the Lamborghinis. It's not the Rolexes. It's not all of these things. And I have nothing against those things as long as they're not used as a way to define our identity and to support and bolster our ego. Yeah. There's a big difference. Right now. And, you know, Craig, this has been awesome. How, um, how can people find you, find you online, uh, find the book? Who's the, who's the audience for the book and, and, and how, how can people connect with you? So my website's craigstanlin.com. I'm on LinkedIn under Craig Stanland, Instagram, Craig underscore Stanland. And my book is titled Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. And it is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, published by Lioncrest Publishing. And really, this book is, if I was to sum it up in, let's say, one sentence, it is a guide for anyone who wants to hit the reset button on their life without going to prison. It's always a good idea. Stay out of prison. <laughs> yes, that's always a good idea. That's a, that's a, I highly encourage that. But it is it is written in memoir format. It's my bullet train to rock bottom and the slow journey out and all the tools and the, the techniques that I used to get me to where I am today. I love it, man. I love it. No, I think uh, I love your story, man. I, th- I think you're a great example of that. You know, what, what you think is the end is not the end. If you're still breathing, you're still in a fight. And, um, I really, again, I, I just honor how you've come through that. Right. I mean, it just took so much courage and, uh, you know, so much work and, you know, just self-discovery and, and, you know, walking through the acceptance portion and the forgiveness and, and sharing, you know, the, you know, where you were mentally. And I know people get there and, 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 and to know that, you know, that's, I'll say perfectly human. And there is, it's not over yet. You can go back and like you said, with your blank canvas and, 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 and go, go where you want to go. I mean, I, I think it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. I appreciate you coming on and sharing, sharing your story. Dale, thank you so much for having me on. And I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for having this platform for 
people to come on and to to share their stories and to add value as to the collective to what you said earlier to hopefully increase the amount of joy in the world because when we have people coming on and sharing their experiences and what works for them it really does allow people to connect with you know how they want to show up what they want to do and the more people we have doing that the more joy there is in the world and it just has an impact all around. So thank you for that. And then again, thank you for having me on. I oh, mean, it's an honor. So guys, find Craig online. Uh, we'll get it in the show notes. Go check him out. And Craig, uh, we're going to talk again real soon. Cool. I look forward to it. Thank you, Dale.